coming up. What an excellent day for Max von Sydow. Sydow? 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 Father Marin. And howdy, folks, and welcome back. This is Minute 3 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we are endeavoring to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. And this is Minute 3, and uh, it starts with a man digging, and it ends with another man, a man in khakis. And he is walking, <laughs> and the wind has picked up, and the wind is is blowing a, a very specific direction um, that I noted in this viewing. And Oh, uh, I did not note that, so yeah. I'm interested to hear what you think of that. Keenan, you said you had some some stuff that you wanted to talk about in this. Yeah, minute. I think, well, in the minute, it's also very interesting, right? Because we we continue to see um, a bunch of men who are excavating, seeming to work in unison. We don't get to really notice any of them, right? They mm. we don't get just close ups. None of them have right. different clothes on, you know, mm. different costumes than anybody else. And then we interrupt that with a, a clearly young boy, like a younger person. Uh-huh. So so in many ways, he's the first person that we really notice is like this yes. younger person, and he's wearing will... a red. He's wearing red, which is right. standing out uh, amongst all all the other uh, folks who are wearing like just kind of like ordinary or non script right yeah. things to, to hide them in the background mm-hmm. uh so we know to pay attention to him he's younger mm-hmm. clearly he's wearing uh different colored clothes and he's coming from behind the camera and sort of breaking the mm-hmm. horizontal landscape that we've set up yes and he's running up against um away from us and up the hill mm-hmm. and so we start following him and then you know um uh, I, I sort of make fun in my uh, in my work as a as a film instructor here at UNLV uh-huh. Film of people who sort of overemphasize like um, the auteurist film criticism, which is like, oh, this is like William Friedkin's other film, and this like, but uh, I think it does uh, read a little bit like the way that the French Connection works here. I, oh, I really? Like I'm breaking my own rules. Yes, about this sort of chaos, but we're also very clear. Uh, so these sort of long takes as this boy is running through these tunnels and mm-hmm. and there's chaos all around him, but we always know where we are and where to be looking and, and that sort of thing. So so it did strike me this time as feeling a little French connection-y. That's the film that William Friedkin had made right before this and right before won this Best one, Director yeah. and Best uh, Best Picture for. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And so um, then, of course, he uh, he runs up and we uh, we get the first shot of a person's face and mm-hmm. he is a white man and mm-hmm. he is a movie star of sorts. And that's Max von Sydow. Max von Sydow or Max von von Sydow. Um, oh, yes. My Swedish in-laws will be very upset that I can't pronounce it properly. <laughs> Max von Sydow. I, I when I was when I was little, I called him Max von Sydow. Oh, um, boy. Exorcist fans are screaming at us. <laughs> I can hear them. And the Swedes, um, the Swedes yeah, in the audience. The um, but yeah, and and Ingmar Bergman fans are all just like railing at us right now. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, again, when we're looking backwards in a movie like this and we know the ending and then we also are familiar with Max von Sydow up until mm-hmm. his uh, death only two years ago from when we're mm-hmm. recording this. So yes. he's been in Star Wars films and uh, a bunch of Best Picture nominees mm-hmm. and uh, had a couple Oscar nominations and a very familiar face and mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's it's hard sometimes to think like oh you know this guy looks like he did in the exorcist as he does in shutter island for instance you know uh what would that be 40 years later so what you're saying is the viewers of the theatrical cut seeing him in the theaters and knowing max von i've doomed myself we have doomed ourselves Um, uncle maxi uncle maxi um the man in khakis um 
uh, Max von Kackies. Um, Cedo, 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 <laughs> like Greedo. Yes, and this is this is all thanks to the uh, the Star Wars minute. Everybody, go check out the Star Wars minute. Okay. Well, you know, um, I, I'm a big um, I'm a big uh, trivia person, by the way, uh-huh. and and I, I love game shows and that sort of thing. And in the game show community, we say you know never to make fun of someone for mispronouncing something because it means that they learned it by reading. Oh, I like that. My friend, um, Jim Hoffman, who I'll make fun of here because uh, he's not listening to this. But when we were in high school on the Trivia Bowl, um, uh-huh. he answered during a game. Uh, you know, the, the question was like this Greek word that means the height of something or the most exemplary of something. And he rang mm-hmm. in and said epitome. And we all ah. sort of looked at him. And luckily, we didn't laugh at it because I, I was like, what is that? What is he saying? But of course, he was <laughs> saying epitome. Epitome. Hmm. Yeah. Epitome. <laughs> So anyways, Max von Sydow, I'm not going to be able to yeah. unlearn my pronunciation of him that I've had mm. in my head for for, yeah. uh, for almost 40 years now. So, so Max von Sydow, he, he would have been familiar to audiences uh, yes. because he was the star of a series of movies by Ingmar Bergman, the great mm. Swedish filmmaker. Right. I'm not sure how many uh, Bergman films you've seen. Probably um, it'd probably be right up your alley. I have seen uh, The Seventh Seal, mm-hmm. and I loved that. And that was a younger uh, Max von Sydow. And it occurred to me, it's like, what an interesting kind of like thematic casting where he's talking to death in that one. And then there's another one where he plays the devil. And then in this one, he's going to be also doing this kind of like supernatural, like Christian uh, mythos uh, right. uh, type of stuff. So and of course, his first American role would have been as Jesus the Christ in uh, King of Kings, which oh my was a God. giant epic uh, 1965 film. Well, there we go. See, this guy has it all figured out. <laughs> He's playing it from both sides, I think. Yes. Right, because in the Bergman films, he is oftentimes playing, uh, as you say, uh, devil characters. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, more often than not, he's playing characters who are um, who are concerned with their faiths. Mm-hmm. who are losing their faith. So Ingmar Bergman uh, famously is somebody who uh, his father was the uh, chaplain to the king of Sweden. Uh-huh. So the Lutheran chaplain. So uh, that's sort of the first thing that you learn about Bergman when you're studying him seriously is that not only was he someone who was losing his faith, as a lot of uh, post-war Europeans were, right, considering what had happened in World War II. Right. Um, and also, you know, just the forward progression of humanism. But uh, for Bergman to be doing that as the, the son of a family who was... Uh, professionally uh, a chaplain, mm-hmm. um, professionally um, clergy, uh, that was a big deal. So oftentimes, uh, Von Sydow is at the center of the films as someone who isn't sure that God even exists anymore, even when he's being presented with evidence that God does exist, as in The Seventh Seal, where he is um, uh, not only interacting with death, but playing death in a game of chess. Right. Right. So oh. he is uh, recover. He's coming back from the uh, the Crusades or one of the Crusades, rather, right, hasn't right. seen his family for a very long time, uh, is approached by uh, the Grim Reaper on the beach and says, mm-hmm. well, uh, I don't believe in any of this sort of hokum, but I'm going to play <laughs> play you for a game of chess. And if right. I win, then you get to um, uh, then you get to leave me alone. And if, if you win, then you get my soul, of course. Oh, that is so cool. Because we're going to see in this film that he is one of two priests who are a yin and yang to each other in that we have one priest who is uh, physically strong but weak in his faith. Right. And we have we have this this guy who, uh, as of yet unnamed, um, uh, the man <laughs> in khakis, um, uh, who is – and even here, you can see the moment he gets up, he get, he's, he's, he's on his knees and he's doing a little bit of digging and the boy stops and it's this nice shot 
where the boy's legs and his feet are kind of like framing the introduction to this this new character um, right. and says, oh, we found something at the base. Come see. And uh, the man in khakis gets to his feet, but you can tell that this is a man of years. This is a man who is physically weak compared to like these other like hale and hearty uh, diggers. I like the fact that in his first moments, we are shown that he is kind of like a hero at the end of his journey. He's reaching um, uh, kind of like the end of his life and he is physically, at least physically frail. And it takes him a little bit to get up. It takes him a little bit to walk, right? He has the the white hair. He has the um, aged face, which is makeup, bringing it back to um, everybody is supposed to know Max von Sydow here. And so seeing him, what what do you think their their impressions would be? It's like, wait, I knew Max von Sydow yeah, was here. Yeah, that guy looks familiar, right? But he's old. So he's actually 44 years old in here, or roughly mm-hmm. around that, um, depending on when they shot this. And yeah. it does remind me of um, the God, blockbuster from, Jesus. what's that? You're almost, almost, say you're, almost, you're almost as old as this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Almost as old as this guy who has trouble getting up. Yeah, it reminds me of from the previous year. So The Exodus is 1973. And of Mm. course, in 1972, the big blockbuster of the year is The Godfather. Uh And similarly, we have a Marlon Brando who is 48 or 49, depending on when they're shooting, looking much, much older. So this wouldn't necessarily in The Exodus have been as big of a shot because Brando was a much bigger star. He also had not been in major motion pictures for Mm -hmm. a little while before this that people would have been watching. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. uh, so that would be a shock and you would go, Oh my goodness. Like, um, like this is Brando. Look how different he is. So this might be, you know, uh, Max von Sydow, um, <laughs> you know, uh, if you were expecting him in the film, you'd be like, Oh God, he, he is clearly aged. He's clearly meant to be, <laughs> uh, older than, um, you know, Jesus was, uh, even seven years ago when I watched, right. um, uh, the King of Kings. So, and it's surprising because like, I, I this is the first Max von Sydow film that I saw. I think and, that's true for most people, right? Yeah, and it's not something that that even crossed my mind that that was makeup. And usually, like right. makeup back in the day, you can tell that it's makeup, and this was like expertly uh, uh, applied to the point where I legitimately thought, well, that's that's just <laughs> an old man right there. I think the, um, I think you notice when it's bad, you know, of course, like mm. in something like Citizen Kane, where they very convincingly age over decades, mm. you don't even think about it. And some people will, will sort of even downplay the success of those performances because like, oh, well, Orson Welles is whatever he is, 25, playing a 65 year old man. And you just never think about right. it. Yeah. Um, the human eye and the human uh, perception is is more powerful than than we think. And we can tell when something is like slightly off as realistic as we try to make it like we can tell when there's when something is not not quite uh, uh, authentic. And that's why, that's why, yeah, I was, I was really, really surprised that, um, that the movie was able to trick and still even I know, I know (laughs) that he's only 44 and I'm looking at him and I was like, wow, like that is, that is some really, really good makeup. Right. And um, he continues aging in films. Right. So as I said, he'd, he'd been in, uh, you know, many films over the years uh, since this. Uh, he looks about as old as he does here in um, I, what I believe is one of his very last films in Star mm-hmm. Wars number seven. Don't don't write me nerds. Uh, <laughs> correct me. Star Wars, the first J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Wars yeah. movie. We're doing we're doing this on the back of the Star Wars minute, folks. So. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but he is the first recognizable face in that first Star Wars, and he mm-hmm, looks mm-hmm. the same as he does in The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, amazing. And again, to go back to that, I love I love the fact that this priest uh, is um, uh, physically weak but strong in his faith. 
I know what, another thing that, that that helps out here that I hadn't really thought of until mm-hmm. um, in the last episode, you were talking about how this man is introduced in the book and how mm-hmm. it sounded to me like um, we're supposed to maybe think of him as an overseer, as a colonialist, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I haven't read those books yet. But mm-hmm. here in the film, at, at the very least, he is he is different. He clearly stands out, but he's digging along with the workers. Yes. So it's not it's not as if he were imperiously sort of striding back and forth and saying, right. dig, dig. Yes. Uh, he's he's there in the trenches with them yes uh but yeah so so getting back to here keenan you mentioned brando did you know that brando wanted to be father Marin? i mean of course it makes sense that he would want to right yes <laughs> i believe i i don't know if it was uh friedkin's call or uh somebody else's call but they they said no ultimately to brando doing father Marin because uh they were worried that it would just be a a a Brando film. He would uh, be the star point. of the movie. Yes. Yeah. So and that would, that would mean different things. So, so he had gone back to like the height of his fame with the Godfather mm-hmm. um, and became a big movie star again in the 1970s. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to bring up the Godfather a lot um, <laughs> uh, just because they they sort of go hand in hand with the exorcist, uh, yeah. the Godfather and exorcist in terms of film history. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll continue talking about that. But oh, yeah, um, but yeah, it, it's a fun thought experiment to think what would it be like if this was Brando? Would he mm-hmm. want to cover himself up in makeup again as in the mm-hmm. Godfather, would he have been his, um, you know, uh, would we have seen his face, which just makes the whole movie a different movie. Right, right. Uh, and and just like a little bit, uh, um, uh, kind of a side note, folks, uh, on on this network of, of Minute Podcasts, there's an amazing uh, podcast called The Godfather Minute. They just started the second Godfather movie. Go check them out. They're amazing. Gosh, that's um, so many minutes. Yeah, right. All of all of the first one is done. <laughs> and and I listened to the whole thing. It's it's mm-hmm. amazing. It's great. Um but yeah, it is the power, oh. the power of Christ. Oh, Christ, I'm passing. I cast you out, unclean spirit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's really interesting casting choices here, which is mm. such a big deal. I think it's interesting where they end up, where we have famous people, um, but not not gigantic movie stars, and the movie becomes right. the highest grossing film of all time without yes. the help of of a gigantic movie star like Brando or right. Paul Newman and or people that they had looked at. Precisely, and having them uh, be uh, comparatively lesser known makes the film more real i think because it isn't marlon brando it isn't um catherine hepburn or or, or somebody mm-hmm. up on the screen it's like oh i know i know this person okay this is this is make believe no these are this that might very well be the father damien Karras, except for uh, ellen burson but she kind of like gets an okay because she's playing a famous actress in the movie that's yeah. true and she she is uh she's a star certainly but uh she becomes a much bigger it's again it's hard retroactively to think about this right but mm. but she is a, a famous person who becomes a star because of the exorcist right yes. so when you're watching it for the first time you might be aware of her she had done a lot of really good work but you wouldn't necessarily think of her as the lead of the film right right yeah. the, the overarching star and the last thing i wanted to talk about with these mm. minutes um mm-hmm. again with the introduction of max von Sydow, is that we don't have opening credits as they typically would be in the early 1970s. Um, Yeah, so all we have, as we said in the very first minute, is the director, the uh, producer, writer of the novel, writer of the screenplay, Mm -hmm. and then the title. And so we don't have, um, we don't have much like distracting us in terms of what we're looking at, right, with with any sort of other uh, titles. We don't sit through, say, uh, which was much more common at the time, um, uh, several pages worth of of dialogue of who is who. And I think it might help to, you know, to the realism right the immersion that we're Mm -hmm. um especially when we see like um uh the younger characters right when we first see reagan we're not thinking like oh this is a woman who is uh 
a young girl who's making her film debut, right? And the right. conventional credit, it would say, and introducing Linda Blair as Reagan McNeil. Right. Right. So so this is the beginning of uh, movies that are eschewing the opening credits. The Godfather, again, uh -huh. also eschews opening credits. Uh, we don't <laughs> we don't have that beyond uh, Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Right, um, right. This becomes really standard where directors get to pick. And then within a few years, we have a really big revolution in movie credits through Star Wars, ah. um, where Star Wars is not given the opening credits that are typical and instead has expanded closing credits mm -hmm. with everybody in um, everybody in uh, the crew and the cast who had contributed. And mm -hmm. um, that caused a rift between George Lucas and the Directors Guild of America. Um, mm -hmm. So that was actually something he had to stand up for and fight against the guild and fight against the union to do. So at the time, there had been in like 1973, when our movie comes out, uh -huh. really standard ways of doing this. And people are starting to play with that and think of like, well, what's best for the actual experience of watching the film? Yeah. So we have we have these three juggernaut films. We have uh, uh, The Godfather, The Exorcist, and Star Wars all coming out around. Uh, uh, right now, it also add in Jaws to that mix. And Jaws, what what is the order? What are we? What what comes out first? Oh, what great! Comes out second. That's really uh, that's really wonderful. So the first is The Godfather in 1972, okay. and 1972. that becomes the highest grossing film of all time. And okay. then within a year, The Exorcist becomes the highest grossing film of all time. Okay. And then within two years, in 1975, Jaws becomes the highest grossing film of all time. Uh -huh. And then two years later, Star Wars becomes the highest grossing film of all time. So oh it is gosh. this period where we are really um, reinvigorating uh, box office attendance for Hollywood films after yeah. a period that had been much shakier. So this is the blockbuster era. And we have our pantheon. We have George Lucas. We have Steven Spielberg. We have um, William Friedkin. And we have Francis Coppola. Uh, Franz Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, and, is... and it, it it's sometimes interesting because Jaws and Jaws and uh, Star Wars sort of make sense when we look back at that. Mm -hmm. But The Godfather and The Exorcist, as the highest grossing films of all time, really speaks to this as being an era where it wasn't just necessarily um, what we would typically think of today as blockbuster entertainment, or, you know, right. gigantic spectacles. And um, these are The Godfather and The Exorcist are much more introspective and really dramas at their heart, right? Character dramas. Yes. Um, yes. So this was a time period where that type of movie, if it had you know some of the trappings of spectacle or mm -hmm. Or stardom or being based on a really popular book could become the event of the year. Yes. And folks, um, we are going to touch on this, but go on to YouTube and check out The Exorcist, the cultural impact of the film. It's a documentary just about the theatrical explosion that happened when The Exorcist was uh, released. People lining up around the block to get into this movie, um, uh, you know, waiting uh, for hours just to get in, only to faint or to throw up or to <laughs> run out screaming. And then they would get back in line again and try, you know, like determined to watch, you know, the rest of this film. It was it was a phenomenon in and of itself you know not even not even talking about the story but just like the story about the story it's it's right. pretty amazing yeah i'd love to talk about that more because movie going was very different in 1973 than it would be today so mm. some of that stuff that's in that brief documentary is um is uh, pretty foreign to us today mm. uh, as foreign as uh, say a blockbuster or a vhs tape <laughs> That is that's that's all I got for for this particular minute. Uh, Kenan, you got anything else? No, that's it. Okay. Um, what what compelled us this minute? I don't know. Um, oh, see. you know what, Kenan? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. Until next time, folks. The power, the power of Marlon Brando, Brando compels us. Brando.